0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. My name is Glenn Walter. I'm president of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Our speaker is Knoxville News Sentinel editor Jack McElroy, and he will be discussing Collapse How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed by Jared Diamond. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I thank you to uh, the library and the friends of the library for inviting me. I'm glad to have the opportunity to do this. I don't know how interesting my presentation will be, but the concept, I think, is great. When I was invited to, to do this, Collapse was suggested as the book. I hadn't read it, but I, uh, I had read Guns, Germs, and Steel, which was an earlier book by Jared Diamond that uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. And I had really liked it. In fact, it kind of was one of the, the handful of books I've read over the past several years that helped shape sort of, you know, the way I, I looked at world history and such. And um, so I, I was excited and welcomed the opportunity. Uh, Diamond I, is a pretty eclectic guy, apparently, from his research. Uh, he uh, has a background in physiology and biology, microbiology, but a lot of his work it seems to be in the area of geography, and certainly the, these books cover a lot of ground. Uh, have, have people here read Guns and Germs and Steel? Um, it, it's about the growth of civilizations. Collapse is a similar analysis, but it's the reverse. What were the factors that led to the collapse of civilizations? He uh, uh, takes a number of case studies and, uh, and looks at them you know, fairly closely. In some cases, he finds uh, ones that make good points of comparison, he deals with it historically, and then brings it into the present age and looks for lessons that we can derive from it. Uh, The book actually starts with the poem uh, Ozymandias by Shelley. That poem is one that reminds us that all things pass. He points out, uh, uh, of course, early on that uh, you can't do the same kind of experimentation in social science and you can't go into a laboratory and replicate factors but he tries to, I think, in a lot of ways in this analysis, as in guns, germs and steel, to try to find a scientific basis and measurable characteristics that can be used to explain how events unfolded in these different societies and looks for points of comparison so that in in effect, looking back, you have something of a laboratory approach that you can uh, make comparisons from. He cites the five major factors that he uses for the analysis are damage to the environment that the societies inflict uh, themselves, climate change, and this doesn't necessarily, and in fact in, in the great bulk of this book it doesn't mean man-made climate change. It just means cycles of drought and such. Hostile neighbors and friendly neighbors. And then finally he looks at the society's own response. How do people respond to the, uh, the changes that they find occurring in their environment, and how does that then affect whether or not they fail or succeed? And he begins in what I thought was a very odd place, the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, and I thought, well, okay, this hasn't collapsed, and so what's this all about? And he, he's writing from a, a more personal perspective. He had vacation through the years uh, from his youth onward in the, the Bitterroot Valley, and uh, so he had a feel for the place, and he knew people. It began to dawn on me that it was a pretty apt uh, way to start the book because he found a number of examples of these various factors at work, and he was then able to personify them with real people and how they uh, react and deal with uh, some of the issues that are being encountered. Uh, And that, of course, is impossible looking back in history. And, uh, you know, like Easter Island, we don't know how they felt or who the people were. But in the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, it's a difficult environment. There's been considerable deforestation. Logging has hit it hard. The uh, mining, there's seepage of cyanide from gold mine and other kinds of of pretty serious effects on the watershed. And a, a number of environmental impacts, and people have mixed points of view of how they're reacting to it. Some people want to keep things the way they were, some you know want to change uh, there 's newcomers there 's people who have been traditionally there. He uh, kind of creates this this view of how a society might be poised on the brink of collapse, in effect. Not that he's projecting that Montana is about to collapse. Uh, But what he does say is that I think more than half, and I'm not sure I jotted this down in my notes, so I'm going to draw things from my memory and contradict me if I'm wrong, but I I think he said that more than half of the, uh, the revenue in this region actually comes from outside of the region. People have retired there. They, are, they have investments elsewhere and such. So what he says that really, if in fact that area of Montana were depending on its own resources for its support, that it in fact would have collapsed as a society at this point. Okay, that's kind of the introduction. The next big hunk of the book is looking at ancient societies that have collapsed. And he begins with Easter Island. It's such a classic, iconic image. This actually struck home for me in a, in a little bit of a personal way. My previous boss uh, was uh, talking about changes in the newspaper business, and he had taken to using Easter Island as an image of how uh, entities needed to change or they would die. Okay, and he was applying it to the the newspaper business. And we need to evolve. Things are changing. We need to, you know, we don't want to end up like Easter Island. You know, they built these big heads, but now they're all gone. You know, and so I have a little charm of one of the Easter Island head figures that he handed out to everybody. It's actually hanging from something on my desk. So what he used to always say is, well, they could have made changes and they could have survived, but they failed to do so. And he kept saying, well, for example, they could have fished, okay? Well, turns out it wasn't that easy for Easter Island. It's rather remote from the rest of the Polynesian islands. It was settled, but then it had no further contact with the rest of Polynesia, so it was was isolated. At first, the uh, resources were abundant, and they did fish. They had big canoes, and they went out and they fished for tuna. But there was very little uh, shelf uh, or the, there's no reef or anything that allows for really good fishing close in. Okay, You've got to go out into the ocean to uh, have success in, in fishing there. But as time went on, It's very serious deforestation. They wiped out all of the the land birds and such that were easy prey. And uh, he raises the question of, well, what was it like when the last tree got chopped down? You know, why? Why couldn't they change? And, And that's part of the analysis that continues. And the thing about Easter Island is... Of, of those five factors that he uses for his analysis, which is the damage to the environment, climate change, hostile neighbors, friendly neighbors, and society's response, only two really affected Easter Island, which was damage to the environment and society's response. Okay, they, the other three did not come into play. So it was the most simple case, and in a sense, in a very global sense, It's what the world faces, because as a globe, as a planet, we're probably not going to be dealing with hostile or friendly neighbors. And while we might have internal climate change to deal with, it's really mostly going to be what we do to our environment and what our response is that will determine uh, what happens on the planet. So it's a very small microcosm of what we face globally. He looks at a couple of other Polynesian islands as well, Pitcairn and Henderson. I only knew of Pitcairn Island from the uh, the Bounty mutineers and learned more about that. And they were islands that had some resources, but not all the resources they needed to to survive and thrive. And so they traded, and they needed to trade. And when problems arose on the island of uh, Mongareva, I'm not familiar with Mongareva, but that deforestation and problems there created civil strife, then trade broke down with Henderson and Pitcairn. And as a result, they could not maintain their societies any longer. And they collapsed and became uh, vacant until a bounty mutineers arrived. After the Polynesian analysis, Diamond looked at the Anasazi culture, which I had a little bit of familiarity with because I worked for a number of years in New Mexico. Very different, less isolated environment. This was a case where the society really thrived and grew and uh, farming spread, but Deforestation affected the water table. There were drought cycles that occurred. During the good years, the cultivation was spread out quite a bit. There was a lot of irrigation that was put into place. But then they were overstretched when the drought cycle dropped it back down. And they were unable to adapt. And there's indications of warfare and cannibalism ultimately occurring there when the final drought cycle hit that was too extreme for the complexity of the society that they had built. One thing that I felt was really interesting in many parts of the book were the uh, research techniques that were used and in this case uh, tree ring analysis was very important. They were able to really map the drought cycles but then uh, pack rat middens, I guess it's like the pack rats go out and they gather stuff from all around wherever they are, vegetation their wastes and such kind of make it clump together and it it, uh, then becomes, they call it like a little time capsule of the plants that existed at that time and so uh, now analysis can be done they map the tree rings and they know the cycles of the rainfall from that and then they compare it to the pack rat middens and what existed there through radiocarbon dating and they can tell basically exactly what was happening to the forest you know all of the vegetation and that's how they can Map than the cycle of what occurred there. He went on from there to another American culture, which was the Maya, more complex, bigger, and also had some written records. Part of that was really a case of a very large population of at 1.5 million people in an area about the size of Colorado, so a large population for ancient civilization. And he then looks ahead to current areas that have struggled with overpopulation and uh, in particular Rwanda and uh, and Haiti. Then he, he looks at the Vikings and their spread the Orkney Islands, Iceland, Greenland and even Vinland and he applies this analysis to those settlements. Uh, Vinland where well, you had tremendous natural resources when the Vikings reached North America but the uh, hostile neighbors were just overwhelming, and they were not equipped to deal with the the native population and they They were driven away iceland uh, he looks at the the how fragile that environment is, and in much of the analysis here it 's looking at you know, rainfall the soil characteristics what can be sustained and in some cases you people would get to a place it would look very lush and green and fertile because it'd been growing for you know a million years but it really was very fragile and if you uh, it had a very hard time to to restore other places Lush and green, and and look really fertile, and it was really fertile, and it could re, it could restore itself very quickly. Iceland was an area that was extremely fragile, and the Europeans arrived, did tremendous damage to it, and Iceland was at one point the the poorest European nation. And uh, but then he said, okay, they've made adjustments, and they, uh, particularly taking advantage of the rich fishery in the area, but uh, geothermal in more recent years and such, and so that it actually now has one of the highest standards of living in the world. Um, So sort of a success. He uh, counters that with Greenland, and I thought this was one of the more interesting parts of the book. The Vikings arrived in Greenland, They started farming. They wanted to be like they had been in other parts of Europe and Scandinavia. And they set up dairy farms, and it worked for a while. But as they began to cut down the forests and as environmental cycles occurred, it became more and more difficult for them to sustain their way of life. They're living in Greenland, okay, and they do not eat fish, Okay, that's a that's basically a taboo. Okay, you know this is the way things happen. That it may have actually been that I don't know was it uh, Eric the Red or whoever led the colonization may have one time eaten a fish or something and gotten sick and kind of declared, "Well, we don't eat fish." Okay, that's our that's our tradition here, and that stayed as a societal norm. So they they had to, you know, for their protein, they had to have cattle or sheep. And um, meanwhile, while the Norse were colonizing Greenland, the Inuits also were colonizing Greenland. And there had been previous uh, Native American cultures there that had failed. But the Inuits arrived, and they used kayaks, and they they caught whales, and they they found a way to to live in this environment and the norse adopted none of the ways of the inuits they could see them you know that that's, that kayak works pretty good you, you know you've got this skin covered craft it's highly maneuverable they can move out there they can you know harpoon a whale norse did not start using harpoons they did not use kayaks they cut down trees and made you know, boats until they didn't have any more trees. And they simply did not make those kinds of adjustments, even though they had examples of, of ways to adjust. And ultimately, that completely collapsed, and the, the Norse existence on Greenland then ended. Deforestation is a big part of the discussion. He goes to some good examples then, too, of societies that reacted to that in a positive way, or that we're able to find a solution. And these were a couple of things I I didn't know about. Papua New Guinea and the New Guinea Highlanders who began to, at one point, really were facing a deforestation issue. They began growing trees as crops, uh, silviculture, a particular species that was particularly valuable. And it became part of their culture to basically be tree farmers as well as other things, and uh, had tremendous success in encountering deforestation. Another example was uh, Japan. During the uh, Tokugawa shogunate, peace had been established across the islands to a large extent, and so there was a growth in population, there was uh, more consumption of resources, and Japan began to face a serious deforestation problem and In this case, it was the the shogun, the authority from on high, that implemented rules that uh, began to limit the ability for people. They they had a bad fire in 1657, and it would have required a lot of rebuilding. And they realized there was a crisis, and uh, at that point they imposed uh, severe woodland management rules. In some cases, they transferred a lot of forests into private hands so that you'd own the forest, you'd control it, keep other people out. So I'm sure it had a lot of... Effects short-term on, on people, but in the long run, Japan uh, preserved its forests. Uh, one of the more interesting kind of microcosm uh, was the uh, island of uh, Tocopia. I had never heard of it. It's very small, and the population, I think, was just a few thousand. Around 1600, they began to see that they were in a situation of having damaged their environment, and at that time, raising pigs was a very important part of their economy and their society. But they decided that the pigs were doing harm. They were going around and chewing things up and, and damaging the environment in a way that they could not no longer afford. So they killed all the pigs on the island, and they then imposed a tradition of zero population growth. And this was enforced on just a societal moray basis that through contraception, other means, and in some cases actually virtual suicide was in effect what he said, that young men would go out on these extremely dangerous sea voyages that were very likely to lead to their death and such. And for hundreds of years then, they maintained a zero population growth. And then the society was completely sustainable. Now, when Europeans made contact, a lot of the rules changed and such, and they were facing new issues. But that was sort of the next part of the book. And the third part, then, was modern examples. The first one he looks at is Rwanda and looks at the roots of the genocide there. And, of course, he points out that genocide, is very, very complicated, that you can't say that, well, environmental factors will necessarily result in this kind of outcome. But he makes a pretty strong case that it was an important contributing factor, that this was a part of Africa, a very densely populated, uh, density was increasing, it got to the point where young people had through some of their their cultural norms, there was the subdivision of farms or such that young people ran out of options they had to just continue to live you know with their uh, their parents or their grandparents for many 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 years beyond when they would have maybe normally gone out and started their own families they couldn't marry because they had no economic resources population continued to grow and the pressure increased as time went on and and ultimately exploded in the the holocaust that we saw there he also uses the Dominican Republic as an example as a comparison to Haiti with the Dominican Republic not a complete success story but much better off than Haiti and Haiti the deforestation is extreme and the environmental degradation is considerable and the resources are very depleted that was happening on the Dominican Republic side of the island as well but then in um, 1966 uh, Joaquin Belaguer became uh, the dictator, and people debate the reasons why, but he imposed severe limitations on the destruction of forests. He banned logging, he shut down all of the sawmills, he evicted all of the squatters from the forests, and on and on. And the Dominican Republic was able to bring a halt to the deforestation. Of course, the deforestation is viewed as like a precursor to many other environmental problems. Then, because then you have soil erosion, you have then uh, the watershed is damaged. Then, be out into the ocean, the fisheries can be harmed, and so there can be a whole chain reaction of problems. Two of the last modern societies looked at were China and uh, Australia. China, it was just fascinating. Of course, the problems are huge, the nation is huge, and the issues are huge. Of course, China, like all of the third world, wants to achieve first world living standards. He states that in the first world, we consume about 32 times the resources as people living in the third world do. And so if China alone were to be able to move from third world to first world, that would more than double the consumption of the world's resources. And he postulates that that's uh, we're, we're not at a sustainable level of consumption right now, and that would would surely not be possible. China... A lot of deforestation, a lot of other issues. It is now, in effect, outsourcing its deforestation because it is importing lumber from other countries that are destroying their forests. And that that, in fact, is part of the global economy. The environmental damage is in some cases being outsourced to other countries. Hard rock mining would be another example where some third world countries might have mines that are run with very little regulation, environmental protection, and we import the benefits of the minerals and such that are being mined. The last, then, of the modern modern nations that he analyzed was Australia. This is a first world nation, but he describes the environment there as being Uh, extremely fragile. There's been a lot of damage. Of course, it's an iconic example of what the rabbits have done to Australia. Beyond that, uh, there's the cultural traditions that people arrived in Australia, they wanted to live like Europeans, and they brought that lifestyle, and it's causing problems uh, that are of increasing magnitude. And in some cases, the government policies actually are supporting destructive practices uh, farming is extremely unproductive in australia although a lot of the nation is dedicated to farming uh, grazing and such i think the uh, the statistic that's cited in here is that less than 1% of the farming activity that occurs in australia is actually contributing to the nation's gdp uh, the rest is, is in some fashion or another, actually a net detractor from the nation's overall economic activity. So from a cultural standpoint, if Australia were, were able to shift away from those traditional activities, they could have a much more sustainable future and growth. But at this point, they are uh, mining... Uh, renewable resources. The idea that you're consuming renewable resources faster than they can be renewed is the same as pumping oil or mining gold or whatever. If you're using up your water faster than you can get water, then you're mining it. The final book within this book was the Lessons Learned piece. It kind of asks the question, well, why... Do societies do this? How can you destroy yourself? I mean, can't you just look around and say, well, wait, let's stop. You know, what's going on here? And he points to several factors. uh, The failure to anticipate. Maybe you you don't really realize what you're doing. Or as problems are arising, you don't accurately perceive them. Sort of the idea of creeping normalcy you don't really remember how it used to be and you don't really realize that it's worse right now and that that maybe is how it was with that in Easter Island when they chopped down the last tree was, well, people around there, they had never seen that many trees anyway, you know. So it's like, well, there's only one left, but, you know, might as well use it. The other issue that he points to is some people in society benefiting from the consumption or from the destructive activity while many others are harmed. And the people who benefit may be a small group, an elite, and for them it's very important to carry on this activity because they gain significantly from it. Whereas to the many who are harmed, the harm is spread much more widely and they are less motivated individually to act, uh, to try to stop what's going on. From there, he sort of logically then goes into a look at modern business practices and and how that comes to play. He looks at some businesses that he feels work in a sustainable way. Others are clearly not sustainable and ultimately looks at the emergence of uh, stewardship councils, which I was not aware of, In the area of forestry and um, seafood, uh, there's now councils that are setting standards for sustainability and then trying to provide mechanism to sort of put the stamp of sustainability on businesses or organizations that maintain sustainable practices. He sees this as an area of potential promise in the future, Uh, that we may, like, for example, Home Depot has signed on to the standards of the Forestry Stewardship Council, and that means that the lumber you get at Home Depot has been harvested in a way that has been certified as being a sustainable practice, and that we as consumers can say, well, we're going to... Consume within the realm of sustainability by being able to track what has been certified as a sustainable practice. And he's hopeful of the growth of that kind of movement. He wraps it up with what he calls is a bunch of one-liners that are sort of the responses that people uh, have to these questions. And, for example, you know, the idea that, well, technology will solve our problems. We'll do okay. Or that it's the environment versus the economy. You know, we can't save the environment because that will harm the economy. He says that's simplistic. Another one he points to is the, well, I'll be dead anyway, okay? And... Uh, <laughs> And, and I'll end on this and open it to questions then, that um, he, uh, he says that in fact, according to the way he looks at it and what uh, is going on right now, the, uh, the factors that he identifies as being critical in the global situation will become acute. And we will be seeing the world moving into crisis uh, within the lifetimes of today's young adults. So our children and our grandchildren will be living to deal with these crises. So maybe some of us may be dead anyway, but there may be some people we care about who will still be around. The subtitle is that how societies choose to fail or succeed. Yeah. Choosing depends on an informed public, and you're in the business of informing the Mm -hmm. public, so you're pretty much in charge. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) How do you see the prospects of our country and the world? Well, I think that is probably one of the, uh, the criticisms of his thesis, or at least one of the critical points of discussion, Many of these ancient societies collapsed. What was their knowledge base? How could they see what was coming? How informed were they? If they could have seen it coming, would they have acted differently? He talks about absentee management can be one of the factors. That you don't see it because the people who are running it are someplace else. And if you stop and think about the way the world is today, that's how most of it is in a way. Because what's happening in the rainforest we may be impacting that when we eat at mcdonald's or whatever but we're not actually seeing it the idea of sharing information is clearly crucial and and is probably you know our best best hope he does have examples in here of societies that did make adjustments japan Kind of from the top-down method, the boss said, no, no more cutting down trees, and they saved their forests. In uh, the uh, New Guinea highlands, it was more what he calls a bottom-up approach, that people just realized that they were losing their trees, and they, they started growing these trees that they liked. So there may be ways that, through information, uh, the forces of our global society will adjust we should be able to solve this problem. It shouldn't be for lack of information. We also have a lot of technological tools that others did not have in the past. So I guess I came away with seeing the challenge being smaller groups acting in their own rational self-interest might be more motivated to continue non-sustainable practices while larger groups that ultimately will be affected are unable to mobilize to balance that and whether or not we can achieve a voice of balance before crisis arises. And I'm not sure. I don't know whether. Uh, I think it's um, I, just my opinion. Uh, I think there's probably some crises on the horizon. Uh, you know, things are are moving very rapidly in the world right now. A lot of things are happening and changing, and um, I think there could be some uh, some scary times ahead. But I hope that, in fact, we will be creative enough and informed enough to adjust. Uh. Uh, you were talking about Montana. I lived in Montana, I got to about in the seven, 1970s. So I can just... Uh, Give you an idea of what I experienced from that time. It was a cowboy state. And don't come into my territory. Tourism uh, was not heard of. They were a small identity, 800,000 people. And they kept to themselves until they found out that they have to invite people into the state. And that's when they started to progress yeah it's uh it, the book does talk about attitudes and how people may be conservative, like the example of the Norse in Greenland, and they had particular conservative attitudes, and those may serve well and and in particularly in a a fragile environment uh it's dangerous to take chances, but it's also dangerous not to sometimes change, so it's interesting. You had mentioned earlier that uh, societies could collapse with, with um, hostile and friendly neighbors. Yeah. I get the hostile, but can you talk a little bit more about the friendly? Sure. Yeah, the, the example that was uh, cited there that I thought was the most telling was that one uh, about those Polynesian islands, uh, Henderson, Pitcairn, and Mongareva And that that society was flourishing, or at least was surviving, uh, among those islands until crisis hit at Mongareva. And then the trade network broke down, and that killed Henderson and Pitcairn also. They didn't do, nothing changed for them except that their trade system failed. And it's an important question today. Because of the global economy, and and that's where I mean uh, we have a lot of friendly neighbors. But if something breaks down in that network, what will be the effects on us? And I think it could be one of the really crucial factors that lie ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.